0: When I was little and they had gotten me the violin, it was so dear to me. I, I used to have it beside my bed. I used to sleep with it actually. And then I still remember the smell of my first violin, how it smelt. So I used to hold it close to me and smell it actually. It was very intense emotional attachment.
1: Welcome to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. I'm your host, Joe McHugh. And early on in the Rosin the Bow project, I had the good fortune to interview violinist and composer David Balankrishnan. David lives in the San Francisco Bay Area and is a member of the fabled Turtle Island String Quartet. I featured that conversation with David in an earlier podcast. And then one spring day in 2017, I called David and discovered that he was spending several months in Lawrence, Kansas, working on a musical collaboration with a noted Indian violinist, Prajna Banjore. The city of Lawrence is home to the University of Kansas, where Purna teaches mathematics, while also pursuing his passion for the classical violin music of southern India. So I decided to hop on an airplane and travel to Lawrence so I could interview both David and Porna. Here then is part one of that conversation, which took place the morning after they premiered in concert, a musical composition that seeks to bring together the classical violin music traditions of East and West. We are here at the Hull Center for the Humanities at the University of Kansas in Lawrence, Kansas. On Easter Sunday. And uh, I'm here going to interview...
0: Purna Prajna
2: David Balakrishnan.
1: And uh, last night you gave a premiere performance of a piece of music, uh, Purna that you composed and worked I, with.
0: It was a joint composition of me and David. Okay.
1: And David's here now on a, as an artist in residence for two months.
2: Yes, this is the end of a two-month residency I have here at the Hall Center to work with Porna on this this, uh, project.
1: And you play with the uh, Turtle Island String Quartet?
2: Yes, I do. I play violin.
1: Let's start. I I would love to—two things I, I would love to get to start with is your personal story. But I think to put that in context, if you wanted to give me some history of the violin in India and in Indian culture, that would be very valuable.
0: As I understand it, in uh, India was introduced by brother of a major composer in uh, 18th century by name Muthuswami Dikshitar. That is what I have heard. But there are uh, indications, uh, due to some research by a researcher in Mysore, that there are some paintings in the Mysore Palace predate the even earlier than it was thought they say, because of the painting in the Mysore palace. And then uh, this was introduced in South India, not in North. So the violin tradition is much stronger in South India. And it's it's predominantly a South Indian instrument, which is uh, uh, used as an accompanying instrument, but also a solo instrument after 1950s, because of some major uh, instrumentalists, violinists, who uh, came into being in 1950s. 1950s. So it became a, a solo instrument as well, 1940s and 50s. Was it
1: draw, drawing from, obviously, traditional Indian melodies and ragas? Yeah, it's
0: a, based on a raga system, Carnatic music, South Indian classical music. It was introduced. It's a very primary source of uh, of accompaniment for vocal and other instruments.
1: And would it have been used for to accompany dance also?
0: Um, yeah, but for dance... Uh, Many other instruments are used as well, but for a for but for a, a classical South Indian classical concert, violin is an inevitable accompanying instrument or a solo instrument.
1: And have you been to India, David?
2: Many times, actually.
1: Uh-huh. And have you studied some of this tradition also?
2: You know, Purna and I have discussed this. Um, uh, I early on realized that the learning curve for studying Indian classical violin and the way that it's played was so diametrically different than playing the Western style that it made more sense to me to use that as more of a muse of sorts, like listen to it a lot. I love the sound of it. I love to try to find my way of getting to those sounds, but to not try to go cross into tr- actually learning the specific technical aspects of how to play that music. I more studied the Indian classical music from an architectural compositional side uh, and has made, played a major role in the creation of my group, the Turtle Island String Quartet.
1: And your father was Indian.
2: Yeah, he was from South India, not too uh, far from Porna's family. Uh, he was from palakkad area, and Porna will tell you ab- about his history in Mysore.
1: So, Porna, if you wanted to tell me now uh, some of your own personal story, how did this all happen in your life?
0: Well, I was always uh, in love with violin since... Uh, as far as I can remember, four years old, actually. It somehow used to evoke a kind of emotional reaction for me, the was, violin.
1: Was there anyone else in your family that played?
0: No, but certainly my parents always used to listen to music. And my father used to talk about violin. And we used to listen to Western classical, actually, more than even Indian classical when I was a little kid. I remember uh, listening to Menuhin and, and Oysterac.
1: What did your dad do? What He's he a mathematician. Worked? He's a mathematician, yeah. like you are,
0: right? Oh. Teacher, more, more, mostly teacher of mathematics.
1: And do you think why was he attracted to the Western classical music? And
0: he listened, of course, Indian too, but there was a he had a certain uh, group of people, kind of what I would call as really intellectual set. They are poets, writers, scientists, philosophers, educators. So they were broadly educated people interested in. Uh, world as a whole, rather than just uh, Indian paradigm.
1: So he would have been a young man, or, or uh, yeah. during the Second World War? What was his...? No, no, no. He
0: was born in 1936.
1: Okay. Yeah. So you were drawn to it. How did it...?
0: So the, I was drawn to violin uh, from a young age. I, it was almost an emotional reaction. But I didn't start studying it till much later. I studied uh, vocal music for seven years. And then uh, I told my parents I have to learn the violin. I'm going to learn. So they put me to a teacher. And then the, my vocal teacher thought that I should be going to a, a high-class teacher, He's, who is my present teacher, actually, for the last 36 years.
1: And what's his name?
0: His name is H K N Murti. Murthy. He's a, one of the leading violin teachers in India. Well,
1: I was watching the concert last night, and I, of course, have a very... Shallow understanding truly of Hinduism and reincarnation, but I was curious about this idea because we have in the West, you know, the phenomenas of the Mozarts and these child prodigies, and you wonder whether somebody's paid some of those dues in a former life to get where they mm-hmm. are. You mm-hmm. know, what's your sense of this uh, destiny, as it were, this draw, this passion? Yeah, there
0: is, you know, I, I don't know what how to make out of it, but I can just tell you what I have felt. Uh, so, I, when, I was, when I was little and they had gotten me the violin, it was so dear to me. I, I used to have it beside my bed. I used to sleep with it actually. And then I still remember the smell of my first violin, how it smelled. So, I used to hold it close to me and smell it actually. It was very intense emotional attachment.
1: This is an aside, but again, referring back to last night when you were playing, an idea came to me that had never, I'd never entertained before. You began to start the second set, and you stopped to rosin your bow. Of course, the series that I'm producing is called Rosin the Bow, so I was thrilled. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> but as you were rosining the bow, I thought, where does rosin come from? And it struck me that the violin itself is the flesh of the trees, and the rosin is the blood of the trees. That was the poetic idea that um, came into my mind. But kind of the cheese. smell that you you have in these instruments, I love yes. that smell. And you take it out of a case, and it almost immediately moves you into a place, at yes. least in preparation for
2: music. Correct. That's why I love the smell of a violin maker's studio, his workshop. It's You walk into a room like that, it's like being overwhelmed yeah. with the smell of what you're talking It's like yeah. so... Evo- evocative in your heart as a violinist, you go ah. It's like being in church immediately.
1: <laughs> yeah, and the
2: varnishes, yes. the varnishes, the, the, the wood, the smell, of the, the whole thing. Yeah. You know.
1: So in, in in the movie The Red Violin, uh, there's the one, you know, the series of episodes, and there's the very young boy, and there is that uh, episode where he sleeps with the violin. At one point, I think his father or something f- tries to take it away from him, and the boy is totally distraught, and it's returned to him. He becomes very ill, I think is how they do that in the movie. Yeah,
2: I haven't seen that, I confess.
0: I have not seen this either. Uh, Violinists
2: who no. haven't seen the movie, <laughs> we confess.
1: Yeah. So as you progressed, you were playing, again, what, what genre of music at this point for you? This is Indian, South Indian classical.
0: classical. South Indian classical. Violin. But I come from a school which uh, takes a more broader view and integrates south and north. This is the Parur school. Uh, one of the greatest exponents is uh, my musical grandfather, that is my teacher's teacher. His name is M.S. Gopal Krishnan. He is like fits, And he's is astonishing. He was. He passed away, but he is quite alive for me.
1: Well, again, maybe an aside, but um, I was wondering again last night, I hear about where violins come from. We know they come from you know, Germany, Italy, of course, and now China is huge. But I had never heard of anyone talking about Indian-made violins. And last night I saw them
0: played in a wonderful... Um, no, that is not an Indian violin. That is a Czech violin made in 1937. The one that you're playing? Yes, and most of the very good Indian violins are not made in India. They're German are Italian.
1: And do you know why it has not caught on that you know, are... they're...
0: No, they do make violins, but you see, it's it's a temperate wood. Yes. So Indians, I'm sure they're capable of making good violins, but their wood is not really suited, perhaps, for this. Most of the violins I used to play, my teacher has, my teacher's teacher has, or many other Indian, they're all Western, European-made, German or Italian. I, even when I was a kid, I had a German violin. It's a copy of Strad's.
1: I talked to Bill Monocle, kind of an expert on violins, and he was talking about how the German violins often are really preferred by what we would call bluegrass or country or folk fiddling in the United States because they project in a different way. They handle steel strings well. And so uh, what kind of violin for your tradition are you looking for? This is a difficult question. I'm not sure how to frame it. But um, in a a violin, what are you listening for? What do you want?
0: An immediate reaction from the violin?
1: Well, I I think that violins basically have three components, uh, as you would judge them. Uh, One is uh, the tone. The second is that responsiveness, which I have a very responsive violin, finally. And until I had one, I never knew they could do that. (laughs) Mm. And the third is projection. And uh, many times violins won't have all three elements, and and you might not want them to. So mm. you may not care about that projection, but you really want the tone
0: and that responsiveness. That's right. That's you got it. Projection is not part of Indian classical music. Indian classical music is largely chamber music for small audience, and in any case, if we have uh, we use amplification. So projection is not. Uh, really major component because when you use these subtle microtones you can't project come what may there because it's a more inward looking paradigm in some sense. So it's a kind of a whisper and subtle sounds.
1: I I read a an essay by someone who was a doctor and also a violinist, and he at one point I think he was not able to play his violin loudly wherever he was staying. There was some restriction to playing loudly. So he had to play if he wanted to play very softly. And he discovered that if he played very softly, intentionally, that all these doors started opening up in his understanding of what was going on. And, uh, you know, that's kind of that inverse logic, which I like, you know, instead of play louder or more boldly, it's get quieter you discover things that maybe...
0: Yesterday you could see that I was modulating this sound volume. Sometimes I was kind of loud intentionally, sometimes very soft. I don't know whether you noticed or not.
1: Well, I, I know that both of you are playing together. So, David, you might want to talk about that. What have you learned in this process about your own projecting sound? Yeah,
2: I'm just fascinated with this conversation. Because with Purna and I, um, there are so many basic fundamental differences in the way that our violins are set up and tuned. And this is hugely important because the sound of a violin resonates from the overtonal quality of the notes resonating. They, the, the overtones in the strings cause the wood to react, which creates its sound. So the, there's the Indian classical violin is tuned in the what you would call sa-pa-sa-pa uh, in Indian solfege. I guess that's...
0: Uh, For example, E, B, E, B.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, versus the violin, which is tuned in perfect fifths. That's technical talk, but uh, in terms of the way the overtones react, um, it's completely different, completely different sound. Secondarily to that is is that um, the Indian classical system, they hold the violin differently and the and the physics of the body as it pulls the sound out is completely different. So those are huge differences, way different than for instance, a, a fiddle player from a classical violinist, much different. By and large, except for a few exceptions, fiddlers play in the same tuning, fiddle and violins the same instrument, play in the same position with the same basic approach you know, with obvious differences, but here is a, it's a complete different thing. And one of the things I'm struck by is the uh, Indian classical violinist is soft. Acoustically, really soft for my ears because they, the, instead of using the arm weight to pull the sound out, using the, the classical violin that's playing up in the in the shoulder, they have it down on their chest and against their foot. They can, they're very flexible, they sit cross legged. And so the sound is much lighter, just like you're talking about. And so my guess is, here, hearing Porna talk, is, is that probably before the 1950s, because they didn't have a lot of amplification, the violin was probably suited more as, as an instrument to use as to back up the vocalists. And you can hear an in Indian classical violin, it'll used to shadow the Indian vocal, correct? And But around 1950s, you started to hear recordings in the West, even in the 60s as a kid, I remember hearing the very beginning recordings of Indian classical violin. And, um, and PAs. And, and so that probably, the, the way the Indian classical violin is played coincided with the, the uh, appearance of electronic uh, amplification, which changes immediately from the ground up the evolution of their sound aesthetic, if that makes any sense. Instead of looking for a big, huge, wooden sound the way uh, classical violin is doing, they're quickly, from the very beginning, integrating with the, the use of the amplification as part of their sound concept. I, well, I could be wrong on that, but no, that's no, my guess.
0: No, I think my teacher used to tell me that uh, even vocal music has undergone some kind of a modification in 1920s, 30s, after the introduction of uh-huh. microphone. Because once you have amplification and microphone, then you can say, like, sarigar, sarigar, sarigar. You can become softer and show more subtleties and embellishments. So Frank Sinatra. (laughs) Exactly.
1: I mean, that's really what he understood. He would carry his mics with him wherever he went because he understood his mic was like his instrument. And he could croon. He could play that real soft and then get loud.
2: Compared to uh, Pavarotti and uh, opera singers where their their technique is designed to fill the hall. In fact, the very way that you play classical violin using the vibrato is a pre-amplification technique that you don't need at all very much. And so when you hear people playing jazz and violin, they tend to let go of that because it more suits the style. It's also an adaptation to the fact that you don't have to pull all that sound. So even if the instrument's still a classical violin, you're approaching it from a different sound aesthetic, which the amplification also affects.
1: So going back within this historical context, the evolution of the concert hall as a Um. technology also had to do with the introduction of Let's call them mass-produced violins. Where Bill Monocle said it was all—it all started with steam. <laughs> that was a great <laughs> way say said. This, the industrial revolution, the invention mm. of steam, suddenly created a middle class, where a certain number of people had leisure for the first time, and really nothing to do with the leisure. Mm. And some people in Europe figured out. We'll get everybody playing the violin and the piano, right? Hmm. So they start to market these violins to people as an instrument that up to that point hadn't been played, except hmm. by court musicians and so forth, you know, and gypsies. And and suddenly everyone is going to get a violin. And then as they develop a interest in this kind of music, the composers start writing for it. And then they start building concert halls that acoustically will amplify And you have a style of music that plays to amplify, to get to the back row. And Mm -hmm. uh, what was going on in India? Did you have that stage of the concert hall for the
0: classical violin? Extremely good question, actually. Um, Most of the concert halls that I have seen are quite poor quality in India. There are a few good ones, like National Center for Performing Arts in Mumbai. But I have not seen many concert halls. Which are good in even some of the major ones have serious acoustic uh, difficulties. So this is not a really sophisticated uh, in any by any means in India. So
1: it's like you skipped one technology and went right to the microphone 1950s. Yeah, microphone, suddenly, boom, and, uh, you go, and uh, sometimes
0: it is really not nice to hear this blaring microphones and echoing all over the place. It's uh, quite torturous actually uh, this is a modern tendency but even 1940 19, 1900s you know even as late as 1980s we used to have concerts in a huge uh, open air but it was covered on the top by some kind of a tarpaul or something like a that theater maybe i don't know
1: well yeah and i guess they call them a, shell, though, so they would a have, shell that would project a little bit of the sound
0: no, 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 it's nothing to do with acoustics at all. Okay. Just to protect yourself from rain or something like <laughs> that. Sorry. And then there used to be mics and uh, an amplification. It used to be much nicer than to have these mics and amplification in a closed hall without proper absorption of sounds. It is really quite torturous to hear that, uh-huh. you know, booming, echoing, and it's really difficult for the instrumentalists. Or even vocalists to sing in this situation, whereas I think in 70s and 80s, that when I was hearing this music, we used to be in a kind of a open air, and like a something over the top to protect yourself from rain or wind, that used to be quite nicer, I would say. But now I hear that they are taking an interest in building acoustically sound halls, but I have not seen much.
1: I bet there's some geometry involved in that.
0: <laughs> I'm sure there's geometry involved in it, and uh, they're not uh, putting uh, their resources in it, or there's no interest, there's no monetary facility. I don't know what is the situation, but it is really not a very good scene about as far as acoustics is concerned. There are some good halls, I mean, in my experience, like National Center for Performing Arts. That's where Zubin, Mehta, and Argonne perform. They are good. There are some Indian concerts also. That's very good. And there are a few others, but not gener- generally, generically, this is not the case.
1: Which is interesting. I mean, here we reflect upon culture when we talk about these instruments. Last night we're in the town of Lawrence, Kansas, university town, but you know, a smaller city. Uh, what was the acoustics last, last night like for you? Because I, I watched you guys in the sound check, and again, trying to match what you're going to do, David. With your violin, and you mic'd it differently, I understood last night than you normally do. Uh, Do you want to talk about how the hall last night works for you to match these instruments to this space
2: that you are filling? Did you you think you mic'd it differently than I don't remember that
0: we mic'd same, but since David is very experienced in sound, he did things and taught me things which I didn't know. Uh, So, for example, uh, there is a sixth note of a scale, major scale, for example. The uh, the uh, what we call as da two, okay, do re mi fa so I can, la. I can explain. that 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 note is uh, usually gives trouble at so David will explain this. Yeah, better. I should explain that.
2: Yes. So that's a C sharp on the G string, on a classical tuning. It's a famous with a wolf's tone on a violin. It always pops out. So what happens is because both of us are using a mic, maybe. Can I say who made it, or is it? Sure, le- uh, it was ma- It's made by Bruce Bartlett, Bartlett Mikes, and um, they're specifically designed for the violin for concert situations. Not so much for, not so much for recording studio, more for performances in many different situations that you find yourself in, from presenting lecture demonstrations in classes to playing full out shows. Um, and so, what he's done is they're attached very close to the instrument. But they're still picking up the sound of a microphone. That picking up the air, as opposed to a contact pickup that uh, guitars use for like electric guitar. So it's still relying on the same technology as this mic is to pick my voice up as I talk.
1: And it's it's located under the tailpiece. It just
2: fits in foam rubber under. It's very low tech idea. To it's very easy to put on your instrument, but it's so close. Whereas you, uh, when uh, properly to micro violin, you should be about two feet away. With a, a specific kind of mic. So, this is not that. And so, it's been adjusted to some degree to account for that. But still, pretty much, there are these two issues that tend to come up around that C sharp on the G string because it's just too close, you know. Um, and so, w- working with Porna last night, I was, this is my expertise from playing in Turtle Island string quartet. You know, we use these mics as well. And so, it was, w- we're still sharing knowledge with each other. We're still in the state formative stages of this. Uh, it's very exciting. So
1: last night, an idea came to me in the middle of the music and the intensity of the music. And I mean, I was just totally caught up in it. And suddenly I realized all anybody's doing up there is moving air, They're just using different ways of moving air. And of course, that made me think of the, the breathing techniques that go back into uh, different um, spiritual traditions and so forth, and mm. and how to control the movement of air is like controlling your breath. How many of us even try to control our breath? We just breathe. We don't think about it. That is
0: called pranayama in yes. the Indian tradition. Yeah, very important. Definition. And this
1: this brings this music back again, which I think is absolutely essential to understand. This is not music coming out of just out of a sense of let's entertain ourselves or make pretty sounds. This is coming out of a deep religious, spiritual tradition. Isn't that true?
2: In the roots of Indian classical music, it's entirely based on a very spiritual basis. But truly, so is Western classical music in the sense it came out of church. Uh, in its very roots of, of, of European classical music, it also came out of the same basic human um, desire to uh, understand. And, and in the West, it became quickly something else where I can't speak entirely with knowledge of the East. Um, in terms of how it evolved over the years. But uh, there's always this underlying spiritual element. And I think Porn and I both, in trying to bring together our places in this, rely on that element to inform us on a very basic level. Of course, on top of that, there's a lot of elements we spend most of our time looking, searching for, connection, connecting with each other.
1: Someone at the concert last night mentioned about at the end – where you bow, you put your hands together and bow to the audience, which I have seen in India. But this idea that you're bowing to the God within the people in the audience. I was also very impressed because I'm a storyteller, and I have to have the house lights up to some degree. I can't perform without that, and I've never seen a musician do that in that setting and I saw when they, they had them up for you for a while, and then they must have thought, well, we'll turn them down because that's how we do business. And you became it seemed to me a little bit more disturbed by that. And then you brought it up again, and they brought the lights back up.
0: You you play to the darkness or light. You know, uh, it's true that once I go into the mood, I go inside myself, and I am with the music. But I still like sometimes to see. It's a uh, Indian music is very interactive in nature. In Indian, if you go to an Indian bhaetak session, as we call, bhaetak is like chamber setting in a room, in a large room. It's a very beautiful experience, actually. Some of the greatest Indian music concerts I've heard takes place in such situations where uh, when, you are, when you play a phrase and it is like a really great audience explode in appreciation of that and one it builds onto you because it's largely improvisational in nature. You know, when you are impro- when you are hooked to improvisation, you have don't have explicit structures all the time available for you. You live moment to moment. I mean, there is a certain pattern and uh, and structures that you have worked on, but you can never know what happens there. In fact, my musical grandfather used to say, "I have practiced all this, sir. You have practiced for 18 hours a day and all." I used to say. And then he once told me, he was, this was in National Centre for Performing Arts, which is one of the great auditoriums in Mumbai. Uh, there he was sitting and then I went and told him and uh, other people asked, what is he saying, some certain violin technique and he explained. He says, I have done all this for a long time, but when I go on the stage, it's between, it's whatever he determines happens. Uh-huh. So it, So in such a situation, the audience interacting with you is very important. Now I am not even seeing the audience yesterday in the darkness. That was a kind of a bit of a (laughs) disconcerting thing.
1: Uh, We use the word classical in the West, and my understanding is you're working from a composition. There's no improvisation going on there. But you're using the word classical for this violin music in India, but there's improvisation.
0: That's right. Uh, what does classical mean? You can ask that question. I, I, what is classical so, mean? <laughs> yeah, that's a, a, well, we can take the dictionary definition, you know, something which has a tradition and rules and uh, so it has all those, it, it satisfies those axiomatics of the word classical. It is based on a system which has strict rules of grammar and syntax. So Uh, You cannot do anything you want. Even the improvisations have to be within a certain spectrum of freedom. It's not, you can't do anything you want. There's a certain uh, speed with which you have to do certain things. All those things comes from a tradition which is set in rules, uh, regulations, and grammar and syntax.
1: David, you deal with this question a lot in your work because you come... Pose and, yes. Right. Yes, so. it's a
2: very important question. In fact, with Turtle Island Quartet, we're a string quartet, which is a 200-year-old form designed to play European classical music, which is a very strong tradition that that um, has similarly very strict rules. And actually, when when the string quartet was born, there was still an ongoing strong improvising language that was part of playing these instruments. In the Baroque period. Yes, and even in the early classical. For various reasons I wouldn't want to try to go into, that slowly disappeared, and then it became much more that you played written out through composed music. Um, I've I got to be careful with this talk because classical musicians that I know are so spontaneous. The great ones, they improvise just as much as jazz or Indian Musicians do. You just have to change what you think about improvisation because improvisation starts, you're really more, you're composing on the spot as opposed to improvising to me is when you're in the moment with music expressing from the same thing that your teacher that we were talking to. And we we went to see some dear friends of ours play a concert of Schubert and it was just so gorgeous, beautiful, and moving. And I could really feel that same hair raising feeling that I get from a great improviser. That's the same thing. So I think that's an important point to make in that with the Turtle Island Quartet, we did draw from America's classical music, which is jazz, which is from the the black cultural experience, uh, the developing this language from using European harmony, but reintroducing in a very uh, Source-driven way, this this uh, being able to improvise an incredible vocabulary complexity that was like John Coltrane, Charlie Parker, all these great players. And so, as violinists in the Western side, we we generally don't have access to that in our tradition as much. So Turtle Island is trying to bring that element together with the the form of the string quartet. And uh, but I think I, would,
1: I think we are talking about composing in real time. Yeah. Versus improvising with timing and tone and attack and all these things that give you a wide palette of possibilities, but still you're playing the notes because you're playing with a quartet or an orchestra. And if you suddenly start to improvise, create new notes, new passages, where last night I thought you were with your fellow musician, you were so locked in. You're reading each other in real time. And that's what we normally think in our world is jazz or improvisation. That's right. Is that too simplistic? The same thing... Um, Because I think creativity does come out of limits, by the way. I don't think it comes out of possibilities. I think maybe that's what we're trying to say. In fact, the more limiting sometimes, like the guy playing the violin so quietly, was a limitation that opened up possibilities. That's
2: true. And I I would say, Purna and I share this, is that with Turtle Island Quartet, our desire is to expand the parameters of Western classical tradition. That's what our main goal is. And Purna's coming from the same place. He's wanting to expand the parameters of the Indian classical system that he came out of still being true to himself and finding his way to uh, go into new territory without so much fusing from something else. This is something that him and I talk about a lot. It's coming from a classical style, which we, we, it's even then hard to define because classical styles are changing Everything's always changing. So something becomes classical because it's been around long enough to have a certain set standards and protocol involved, which protects it and preserves it, but at the same time can slightly kill it if it's squeezed too tight. And so Porn and I are both restless souls wanting to push the the, the envelope. That's what we're drawn to do. And when I hear Porn at play, I'm so moved because what I hear from him is in his very playing, he's moving beyond the traditional. This would be hard to hear for a lot of people, I believe, but I hear it so strongly that he's he's developing a language that moves out. It's expanding, literally expanding the parameters of Indian classical raga without violating the terms of the form, without jamming something else in there. That's the whole key.
1: I think I really get this. So much of what we think of evolving musical styles has been almost mashups. uh, Exactly. Bringing in other styles and saying, okay, well, now we're using this and this. Rather than saying, if you stay in that tradition, it itself was evolving and it will teach us.
2: Yeah, and when we try to talk about it, It starts to, the attempt is to understand it, which then sometimes traps it. And then you can't really do that. You really Mm -hmm. can't. It
0: it wiggles out. It 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 wiggles away. (laughs) It's like a little... (laughs) Because because you cannot trap this, what is very dynamic in the prison of syntax. When you use language, it's a a limitation of the language to express something which is not amenable to the parameters of that language. That's what I think David is trying to say.
1: Right, which is why in a lot of what I'm, you know, I'm fascinated with is you know, what's happening physically with this instrument. And I, I have a question for you on that, by the way, about the, how you hold the bow. And so we're gonna move in a moment into geometry and try to understand how that can be a different language and whether that constricts or captures or allows it to grow and expand. But I, going back to the way you hold the violin, it almost looked like you were holding a viola to me. It was so large. Uh, in comparison to what I'm used to, because you see it in that direction. <laughs> That's right. You, it's going straight down. Right. And you're you're sitting cross-legged uh, on a carpet. And was it resting on your foot, the yeah. scroll? Yes. Yeah, so it's vibrating there. I thought that was so interesting. When I tried to t- – um, my daughter's a little interested in playing the fiddle, and I'm struggling with her because she keeps dropping that fiddle way, way down. And I say, if you if you bring that fiddle up a little bit, look how much less energy it takes for the bow because you have to hold that bow up. But last night, you were absolutely the opposite of that. <laughs> it was all the way down, so your bowing must constantly be having to pull against
0: gravity. That is a very important point. That's a correct point. So for example, uh, in that position, you can't do some some things, just as you cannot do some things in the position in which Western musicians hold the bow. So things that cannot be done and that position are precisely complementary to the ones which you can do in the other position. So what I am trying to do was reconcile both to some extent. So new fingering and bowing had to be used for my part yesterday. So I cannot do the same bow and slur. slur I had to adopt my techniques to suit this new music. Very luckily, uh, my school of music in India is well equipped with this kind of techniques, even though it doesn't get too much opportunities to do that in Indian classical music. So now I am I'm actually fully exercising all the scales and all those things that I did uh, since I was young, which I did not have opportunity to do it in Indian classical music.
1: In part two of this podcast... David and Porna will talk about their artistic collaboration in greater depth, as well as other topics unique to the music of the violin. But let's now listen to a portion of the concert they performed at the Lawrence Arts Center in 2017. In this part of the concert, Porna plays the traditional violin music of southern India. Thank you for listening to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Rosin the Bow is produced by Joe and Paula McHugh in the studios of the Raven Radio Theater. Our theme music was arranged and performed by the string quartet, The Fretless. For more information about the Rosin the Bow project, to hear additional podcasts, please visit our website, rosinthebow.org. And I want to thank here Terry Setter, for his help producing this podcast. Terry is a retired professor of music at the Evergreen State College in Olympia, Washington. We also taught audio production. He is also a respected designer of high-end microphones. Furthermore, let me thank the Department of Music at the University of Kansas, the Hall Center for the Humanities, and Kansas Public Radio for making me feel so welcome in their fair city and making available the facilities for this interview. And I will end with this quote from Mark Twain. India is a land of dreams and romance, of fabulous wealth and fabulous poverty, of splendor and rags, of palaces and hovels, of famine and pestilence, of genie and giants and Aladdin lamps, of tigers and elephants, the cobra and the jungle. The one land that all men desire to see, and having seen once, by even a glimpse, would not give that glimpse for the shows of all the rest of the world combined.